we're going to keep thinking about Noah, so please pray with me. Father, please meet with us and speak to us by the power of your word now, in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so uh, I have some pictures to show you guys too. I've got a bit of a uh, family PowerPoint showing here. Uh, this one. Okay, keep going. All right, so I'm sure you recognize this place. Uh, last summer, I went to Paris for the first time with my family, and the kids and I lined up to climb the Eiffel Tower all the way to the top. Um, well, you can only climb uh, to the second level on stairs, and then you have to take an elevator up the rest of the way to the top. Um, so this is the most popular tourist destination in the world, at least it was before they had to close it, over a thousand feet high, and it was the tallest structure in the world between 1889 and 1930. And it's really, really hard to get a sense of the sheer size of the Eiffel Tower until you climb up it on foot. Um, but here's another picture of uh, thousands of tourists lining up under the base of it, waiting to go up, which gives you some idea of just how big it is. Um, all the way up, I was just overwhelmed by it, stunned by the beauty and magnificence of it, and by the sheer scale of the achievement of building something like this. So I was impressed with Gustav Eiffel, um, because he did this almost single-handedly. Um, he conceived it, he designed it, he did all the engineering work, he got permission to build it at the World's Fair, he oversaw the whole of the construction, his own family iron foundry made all the pieces of iron for it, and he got the whole project built in just over two years. It's a breathtaking accomplishment. And as you look out from the viewing platform on the second level, here's my kids, the tour guide points out a tiny cathedral that's just a speck on the ground below and says, until this tower was built, that cathedral was the tallest building in Paris. <laughs> so Gustav Eiffel most certainly belongs in the Engineering Hall of Fame. But this morning I want us to think about an even more spectacular project, because another man who certainly belongs in the Engineering Hall of Fame is Noah. Right at the dawn of time, before anyone had really done anything, Noah built this. Uh, not this actual one, of course. Uh, this is a reconstruction at the Ark Encounter Museum in Kentucky. Um, but it's built according to the instructions God gave to Noah in Genesis chapter six. So 300 cubits long, translates to about 510 feet long, 85 feet wide, and 50 feet high. So if you stood the ark up on its end, it would stand more than half the height of the Eiffel Tower. Modern engineers and Amish carpenters built this reconstruction in Kentucky using cranes and power tools, and they took about six years to do it, just over six years. And this is now the largest standing wooden structure in the whole world. But Noah and his family of seven people built the original with primitive tools, cutting down and shaping every single tree from scratch in probably about 75 years. And I think that certainly earns Noah a place of honor in the Engineering Hall of Fame, maybe even first place. So um, 
This morning, I want us to think uh, about the mechanics of Noah's flood for a little bit. Um, and I get a little bit overexcited about this side of things. I tend to geek out on the engineering. So I'm going to restrain myself and keep that part as short as I can so that I can remember that I'm actually a priest now uh, and I need to feed you on what all this means about God. Um, but later, after service, we're going to have a special breakout room in Coffee Hour for anyone who wants to keep talking about Noah and the flood. Um, actually, it's going to be the main session, so you can go away to breakout groups um, to talk with your friends, or you can join the main session with me and talk about Noah. Question or answer? Yeah, well, we'll answer any questions you have following up from this. Um, but theologically, this is the point I want to get to this morning. Uh, Paul wrote for us in Romans 15, verse 4, that whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope we might have hope so that's the benefit i want to glean from thinking about now this morning that we might be encouraged and that we might find hope but i want to start by talking about the technical details because Apart from the instructions about building the tabernacle in the book of Exodus, this has to be the most technically detailed passage in the Old Testament. It's full of precise measurements, dates, timings, and sequences of instructions. And today, with the benefit of centuries of scientific study and engineering, we're in a position to evaluate what these instructions would have meant. So historically, as far as we know, nobody in the world would have managed to build a successful ocean-going vessel by the time of Noah. It seems that the very first people to do that were the Austronesian people in about 1000 BC. Um, so it's highly unlikely that Noah had any boat building skill, wisdom or expertise to work with. He wouldn't have known anything about which woods were best or what shape to make it. And God has to tell him, God has to give him detailed instructions. So in chapter 6, verse 14, God says, use cypress wood. Uh, gopher wood is probably cypress wood, um, which is the perfect choice of wood. It's a soft wood, which would have made construction much easier. But it's the hardest and the most resilient of all the softwoods. And it's very resistant to water and rot. Cypress wood is an excellent choice. God says in the same verse, to coat the inside and the outside of the ark with pitch. And that would have sealed all the holes, all the errors in the carpentry that Noah would have made. And it would have made the ship waterproof. And that was so important. Okay, so yesterday we went up into our attic and we have a plastic bin of the stores we were keeping for COVID, which included flour. And in that plastic bin, the jug of water had leaked, all right? And it had got into the flour and it had sat there for days and days in the Florida heat. And guys, it was a Appalling. The smell was so bad. It was vomit-inducingly bad. So Noah needed a waterproof ark. If his stores of grain got wet, you can't imagine how that was going to be. He needed to make it waterproof. Um, God also gave Noah the exact dimensions of the ark, which modern shipbuilders say would have given it perfect ocean-going stability. So that means good buoyancy, and with the transverse metacenter much higher than the center of gravity. So it will never collapse, never capsize, even in a big storm. Compare it to the Epic of Gilgamesh, where the ark that, it, that they get saved in is a cube. A cube is obviously a dreadful shape for an ark. They knew nothing about boat building at the time. Um, but Noah's ark has great ocean-going stability. 
Now, we can be pretty sure that when Noah heard these instructions from God, he didn't understand them at all. He didn't know what God was talking about or why any of these things were necessary. And it was representing a ton of work for him, like a life project, a decades-long project. Um, but God had just handed Noah the formula for the only solution, short of a miracle, that would preserve any human or animal life from what was coming. And Noah just had to trust God and do what he said, even though he didn't understand it. Noah did know that a big flood was coming. And people have wondered whether Genesis is talking about a global flood that covered the whole earth or just a local flood. And as we carefully read through Genesis 6 through 9, it doesn't really answer that question. That's not entirely what it's interested to talk about. The important thing that Genesis wants to talk about, what it does say several times and in the strongest possible language, is that all air-breathing life was going to drown in this flood. So it says that five times in chapters 6, 7, and 8. And chapter 7, verse 21, could hardly be stronger on this point. Uh, verse 21 says, And all flesh died that moved on the earth, birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth, and all mankind, everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life died he blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens they were blotted out from the earth only noah was left and those who were with him on the ark that's basically saying the same thing four times in a row all flesh everything every living thing only noah left so that's the important point genesis wants to make and if you think that air-breathing life was spread out over the whole earth at the time of Noah, then it must have been a global flood. Or, if you think it was a local flood, then the earth must have had only local life. But those are our two possible interpretations of what Genesis says in these chapters. And either one means a very important thing. It means that this flood story is the common property of all humanity, right? So nobody is alive today whose ancestors didn't go through this. Wherever we come from in the world, this is part of our story. And so when we look, lo and behold, when we search the legends of the Earth's old, oldest cultures, we find dozens of stories of a great flood. Actually, there are hundreds. So sociologists have now collected over 200 ancient flood stories from different parts of the world. And it's not just from the Middle East, it's not just the Babylonian epic of Gilgamesh, but China has the epic of Fuhi, who escaped a great flood with his wife, three sons and three daughters, and were left as the only people alive on earth. Hawaii has the epic of Nu'u, who built a great canoe with a house on it and filled it with animals to survive a great flood. And similar stories come from India and Thailand, from African tribes in Tanzania and the Congo, from several Native American tribes, from the Incas, from the Inuits and the Eskimos, and also from Ireland, Wales, Norway, and Finland, among many other places. So people all over the world tell versions of this story, and the reason is that it's part of our common history. And sure, there's a lot of discrepancy between all the accounts, and there's a lot of fanciful invention. But as you compare the accounts together, the account of Noah really stands out in the crowd. It shines out as being clearly the real story, because Noah is the version that's rich in technical detail, precise in its measurements and times and sequences, and plausible in the interaction between God and man. 
And saving all the animals on Earth in one big boat turns out to be quite plausible. Astonishingly difficult, but plausible. But it has to be a really, really big boat. Let's look at it again. All right, so this isn't Ozark. This is officially the largest wooden ship ever built. This is the Wyoming, built in Maine in 1909, and it was an impressive 450 feet long. But that's still about 60 feet shorter and 35 feet narrower than Noah's Ark. So Noah's Ark still holds the world record for the largest wooden ship ever built. But now Amish carpenters in Kentucky have proven that it can indeed be done it helps a lot if you don't need to go anywhere, so you don't have masts or oars or steering or anything like that, just cargo. Um, so let's think about the cargo. Here's a cargo ship. Today we move goods around the world on terrifying looking cargo ships like this. They carry standardized metal containers that stack together like Lego bricks, capacity in TEUs, or 20-foot equivalent units, and that just means how many of those metal containers can you carry. This one carries about 19,000. Here for comparison, it's hard to get a scale of that. Here's a one TEU container ship. Love these guys, they've got a great business going. <laughs> um, so this shows you what one TEU looks like. Uh, it's a container that's about eight feet wide, eight and a half feet high, and 20 feet long. So how many of those would have fit on the ark? Just so you get a sense of it, that's pretty much exactly what it's like to be inside a large U-Haul. If you've moved and got a 20-foot U-Haul, the inside of that U-Haul is almost identical to the inside of that container. Now, Noah's Ark had three floors, and it could have fit 270 of these containers on each floor. Actually, you could have stacked them too high on every floor for a total capacity of 1,620 TEUs, which is about 9% of that huge modern cargo ship. And that's a lot of space. But is it enough for all the species on Earth? Currently, about 1.7 million different species are known to science. Those are just the named species. But scientists estimate that with all the ones we haven't discovered yet, the Earth probably has more like 8.7 million different species, which sounds like an awful lot a very daunting project, but here's the way they break down. There are so many bugs. <laughs> um, more than two-thirds of all species on Earth are beetles, flies, wasps, butterflies, moths, other insects, and invertebrates like snails. A huge, huge number. And uh, the bugs weren't really a big concern for Noah. Uh, they survive like you wouldn't believe, and they diversify like crazy. So if Noah bothered to save any bugs at all, he could probably have fit all the necessary types in a shoebox. Uh, he also didn't bother with plants, algae, or fungi, except as food. They would have survived the flood in seeds and spores and been just fine. So almost everything Noah had to worry about is in that tiny red slice of 1% labeled vertebrates. That includes all mammals, birds, and reptiles, which are the creatures God specifically told Noah to bring. And that red slice of 1% is also half fish who were going to do just fine in the flood without Noah's help. So 8.7 million species actually boils down in reality to about 5,500 kinds of mammals, 10,400 kinds of birds, and 10,000 kinds of reptiles, at most. And it was probably much, much fewer than that, because we certainly have far more diversity in our species now than Noah did then, 
and these numbers include all the extinct animals. Um, but even if it was as many as this maximum number, I think that Noah had space. So let's come back to that cargo container. Imagine that the bottom floor of the ark is only for reptiles. That would mean for each standard container like this, for each 20-foot U-Haul, you'd need to fit about 19 species of reptiles plus all their food for a year. If the second floor is just for birds, you'd again have about 19 species per container with food. And if the top floor is just for mammals, each container would need to hold about 10 species on average. Although in practice, of course, you'd let the elephants and giraffes have their own and ask the mice, squirrels and chipmunks to squeeze in. <laughs> uh, remember that only about a tenth of a percent of all the vertebrates on Earth are bigger than we are. A tenth of a percent. Humans are relatively huge. We, we qualify as megafauna. It might not encourage you to hear that. Um, but the rest of the life on Earth is mostly tiny. Um, and if you do get strapped for space carrying huge elephants, you can always just take infants, which saves on food too. So all in all, the math works out very much in Noah's favor. In fact, it's kind of surprisingly exact. Noah had no idea how many species were on Earth at the time. We have a much better idea now. And you could hardly design an ark for a better size uh, for the life that was needed than what he had. But the size of the task, can you imagine the size of the task of building this? Noah was called to build a wooden boat half the size of the Eiffel Tower when no ocean-going vessels had ever been built. Then he had to fill that boat with enough food for thousands of animals to last a year. And then Noah and his family had to spend that year cooped up in a floating coffin, tossed on the waves with no one but their own family for company while they spent long days shoveling an inconceivable amount of poop. Can you imagine the smell on board? Guys, Noah did that for us. Noah did what God said, and he really saved the whole world. One man, a lifetime of backbreaking physical labor, and everyone you ever meet, every dog you pet, every cow you eat, and bird that sings in your backyard is only there because Noah did what God told him to do. Though it was horrible, though it was hard, though it took years and years and years, Noah did it, and we're all here because of it. So I just want to say thank you, Noah, for what you did. Thank you for all the wood and the nails and your scarborn hands, for your righteous obedience to God, and for spending your life to single-handedly save the world. Surely Noah is a type of Christ, isn't he? And though his achievement is mind-blowing, it still wasn't enough. It still didn't solve the biggest problem. It still didn't solve the problem of sin. So we've got one more week thinking about Noah next week. And we're going to see that the great flood, as serious as it was, did not cure the world of the problem of sin. So what Jesus did with wood and nails centuries later would surpass even what Noah did. But nevertheless, Noah's life shows us just what monumental feats people are capable of if we give our lives to God, if we trust him and follow where he leads through patient years and decades, a long obedience in the same direction. 
Now, as I close, I want to reflect on what this Noah story has to say about God, because it says some really big things. It says that God's not afraid to challenge his people, to push them hard. And the reward for righteousness is often hard and painful work. And it suggests that God is determined to solve all the world's problems using people, even though that might take decades or centuries. He won't just step in and do it quickly and easily by his own almighty power. But God is right that people can do it if he gives them help and if he gives them time. So we wait now through long days for the people of God to complete the tasks that God has assigned them. This story also has a lot to say about the priority of worship. The beginning and the end of the passage we read starts and ends by talking about the clean animals, the ones he took seven pairs of that were needed for sacrifice. And we realize that some animals spent a whole year on board the ark just to be slaughtered the second they got back on dry land. Uh, it shows the priority of worship in the world. And we're going to think about this theme of worship more next week. But the last thing I want to think about is we've got to note the sternness and the severity of God when he judges sin. We really need to note this. I imagine that the world has done a, a, jo a thorough job trying to expunge Noah from its history, trying to expunge the flood and expunge the story, which I believe truly did happen. And I believe the motivation for doing that is that we don't want to think about the reality of judgment. Um, but judgment is real, and here's what it looks like. We know that God is loving and kind and gracious, amazingly patient and slow to anger. He gives us second and third and fourth and 500 chances, but there will be a time when that time for second chances is over, when our time is up, and the chances finally run out. And when that time comes, God will judge with more severity and more totality than the most remorseless human. We have to look at the ark. And I want to zoom in on the detail in Genesis 7, verse 16, that Noah entered the ark with all the animals on the day of the first raindrops, and then the Lord shut him in. The Lord shut him in. It's an important detail because it means that Noah was not the doorkeeper of the ark. It was not within his power to relent and have mercy on any of his neighbors. And that, I think, was a great kindness of God to Noah because I know for myself that that responsibility would have torn me in two. So think about it, the reality of the rain coming. A day or two into the unusual incessant rain, and some people in the local villages would have started getting nervous and thinking, this is weird. I wonder if that Noah guy wasn't so crazy after all. Maybe I'll go and take a tour of his big boat. And so the knocking on the door would have started. And a week later, most of the village is underwater. People are fleeing for higher ground. More than a few are freaking out and realizing that Noah was right. The ark is encircled by a mob, banging and hollering to be let in. Another week, and only the tops of the mountains remain, a good portion of the population has died already of drowning or exposure. The ark is floating now, but it's still surrounded by hundreds of people in canoes and floating on bits of driftwood. They're starting to starve, and they're hammering on the edge of the ark, begging for mercy. And it might have been close to two months before the sound of banging on the sides of the ark finally ceased. And the world outside went eerily quiet as the last stalwart finally gave in to despair and slipped below the waves. God spared none of them. Not one. For me, that would have been the worst part 
of the whole horrible experience. And had I been the doorkeeper of the ark, I doubt that I could have obeyed God and just let all those people die. So it was a mercy to Noah that God shut him in and denied him that responsibility. He shut him in on the day that it started raining, so that when the first raindrop fell on the face of the first villager, it was already too late. They were all doomed in that moment. And Jesus says that it will be the same way when he comes back in final judgment. He uses Noah as his specific example. He says there will be a moment of realization that the time is here now and you are not ready. But by the time that moment of realization arrives, it will already be too late. So if you know today that you are not ready, it's far too dangerous to wait even one more day. And I want you to feel the gravity of what Jesus says there. So I have two questions for our breakout groups now. Um, thinking back to Romans 15, I want to think, how does the story of Noah encourage you and give you hope in this season? And then secondly, what do you feel challenged to do after hearing God's word today? So I'll give you those again. How does the story of Noah encourage you and give you hope in this season? And what do you feel challenged to do after hearing God's word today? All right, see you in breakout groups.